We've been asked to mark song 439. And certainly as we have lifted our voices together in song and engaged in prayer, the opportunity of the other acts so far, the design of which has been to magnify and glorify the name of God, perhaps we can keep in mind that text in Ephesians 3.21. It says on that occasion in a powerful reminder to each of us about the attitude and the glory that we each should desire to reflect to our wonderful Heavenly Father. It is true as we come to the lesson this morning, that you'll notice it has to do with the mistakes of an Old Testament character. The mistakes of a gentleman, a man named Naaman. And I would invite you to turn to 2 Kings 5. And over the next few moments, as we revisit that somewhat familiar record, I suppose, to perhaps look at it from the perspective of grand lessons you and I might be able to extract and take from it to legitimately assist us to be better servants of the God of heaven. The mistakes of Naaman. It is true that perhaps some introductory thoughts might well be worth at least a few moments' attention. Isn't it true that those events and those characters that you and I so often see on the biblical record are characteristics that often seem so very personal? Isn't it true that you and I on many occasions can identify with some individual? We've been in a circumstance not unlike that which she or he has faced. If that person handled it well, may you and I be as wise and as strong. If that person, however, made mistakes, if that person erred in sin, may we in addition appreciate the mistakes and not make the same ones that they did. As it relates to Naaman, the New Testament makes mention of him in Luke chapter 4, perhaps as one final reminder that there's much to be gleaned from a study of Naaman. It is with that in mind that let's divide the lesson into the following arrangement, if, if, if we might. To do that, let's first rehearse a bit about the history of this man in as much as 2 Kings 5 reveals it. And then following that, after we've cast a spotlight on the development of, that, of the first several verses at least of that chapter, then to ask those pertinent questions about what does that mean for you and for me today. Naaman, we're told, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Kings 5, was a rather honorable man. It was, in fact, the case that the king of Syria looked upon him with a great degree of appreciation. He was a mighty man of valor. Verse 1 highlights the fact, as well as later in this chapter, that in fact he apparently was highly regarded by not only the king of Syria, but in fact it would seem the people of Syria as well. Be that as it may, however, verse 1, as it closes, informs us quickly this man, despite these other compliments, he was a leper. He was afflicted with that ancient disease known as leprosy, and in that sense, it caused him, no doubt, great unpleasantness, a great sense of inconvenience. Not only that, others, no doubt, would have looked upon him far less than, he, than they otherwise might. As you give thought to all of that, verses 2 and 3 in this same chapter, go on to remind us that these Syrians had captured a young maiden from the land of Israel. In so doing, she became a servant girl to Naaman's wife. We quickly appreciate the fact that this servant girl made mention to her mistress, the wife of Naaman, there is a prophet in Israel who could recover this man, who could recover Naaman of his leprosy. Naaman's wife, it seems, shared that information. At any rate, it did come to Naaman. 
he learned that there was claim that there was a man in Israel, there was one who, in fact, could miraculously recover him of the leprosy with which he was inflicted. At that point, we notice in verses 4 and following that this man, this man Naaman, besought, or at least had the services of the king of Syria. The king of Syria wrote a letter wrote a letter and sent it by the person of Naaman and sent Naaman off into Israel with this letter requesting services to heal this man of leprosy. That letter was brought first to the king of Israel, a man named Jehoram. We immediately noticed that Jehoram, this king of Israel, quite frankly, was beside himself. I can't heal leprosy. Surely this king of Syria has in fact sent us this letter with the urge to have a quarrel with us. Stir up trouble, if you will. Elisha, the prophet, learned about the king's upsetness, learned about the character of his reaction. He said, send the man to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman and his entourage made their way to Naaman's, or rather to Elisha's place of abode. And we notice in the verses that follow, the word came out. The word was sent by Elisha. You go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you shall be clean. Naaman's immediate response, as was read in the text earlier, was one in which he was rather upset. He was rather disappointed. He was rather dissatisfied. He considered it completely and totally inadequate. In fact, you'll notice in the verses particularly there, verse 11, again, as the lesson text reads it like this. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He certainly expected a far more noteworthy set of events than what he was told. In fact, in the verses that follow, he also was rather upset about the Jordan. There were better rivers, he said, in Damascus than this. And so it was that at the end of verse number 12, it says he went away in a rage. He was not going to do initially that which Elisha had told him. But then cooler and calmer and wiser heads prevailed in the next verse. His servants reasoned with him, If the prophet had asked thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? It would seem that this man Naaman was prepared to do even extensively public and great things had the prophet requested it. And so the servant said, Given that he has asked you to do something apparently so direct and so simple... Isn't it worth a try? Ought you not at least try it? You'll notice in the verses that follow, verse 14, beautifully, lovingly, and powerfully says it like this. Then when he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And thus when he did that which was the command of the prophet, the order of God through Elisha, we find the leprosy was cleansed and he was clean. And now his attitude had changed rather dramatically. In the verses that follow, he then went back to Elisha's place with readiness to offer a gift, a gift of thanksgiving for the fact that you have provided means whereby the leprosy is cleansed. 
Elisha refused the gift. He would take none of it. You'll notice, though, over the last several verses of the chapter, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, had a desire for it. He had an eye to some of those things that Naaman had offered Elisha, and again that Elisha had refused. And so Gehazi secretly, without Elisha's immediate knowledge, went and lied to Naaman and actually received some of those things. Elisha, of course, by the power of God, did know what Gehazi had done. As the chapter closes, the leprosy that had been Naaman's came to be Gehazi's. And suddenly the curtain closes on 2 Kings 5. It is in regard to all of that that what might be some observations that could be of some assistance to you and to me. First of all, consider the way in which the record began. Namely, in verses 4 and 5, we immediately appreciate that Naaman first went to the wrong source. He, of course, was sent by that king of Syria, and first they went to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel was no help. He was unable to cleanse the leprosy. In fact, he had no idea what to do. Doesn't that perhaps indicate that still it's entirely possible to go to the wrong source for answers? In fact, isn't it true today that multitudes of individuals seek with some desire in religion, seek with some desire to approach God in an acceptable way, and yet they go to the wrong source for their answers. They go to some that might be listed here. They perhaps find some words of wisdom in the creeds men have written. Or they find some noteworthy advice in what dad or mom or perhaps another family member would have asserted. Maybe even they give thought to the fullness of a man believing everything he says. Call him a preacher if you like. But isn't it interesting that all throughout this, one might have thought the king of Israel would have been a good source, but he wasn't. Jeremiah 5.31 in the days of the long ago said it like this. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. The children of Israel, you see, those people of Judah, they too seemingly found comfort and pleasure in the false prophets. They loved what they were being told. May you and I appreciate that there is a correct source. Standing powerfully opposed to all of these is the truth of the Word of God. Isn't it a fantastic thing to reflect time and again on how often the Bible refers to the truth? A truth that is, in fact, not dependent on a particular person or culture. Truth that's absolute in every regard. Didn't the Lord say, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? John 8, 32. Isn't it that same truth of which we read in a host of other passages reminding us of its uniqueness? and of, in fact, the greatness of its power. In fact, when we think about Paul and Peter, and we reflect on the fact that those apostles, isn't it true that they marched throughout great difficulties, even into their deaths, because they recognized the truth. They were not willing to compromise it. They weren't willing to, in fact, trade it for that which might be pleasing to men. Didn't Paul say... In 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. 
Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You'll notice the wrong source is then a very sorry matter indeed, isn't it? Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. The truth of that statement hasn't diminished in the slightest in the centuries since the first, has it? Maybe in light of that, consider yet a second set of ideas. Maybe a second interesting observation. When this man, this gentleman Naaman, did then come to the abode or to the place where Elisha was, isn't it still interesting? And let's just reread it again to see the ease and the clarity with which it was stated. Here's the commandment. Here's the order that Elisha gave to Naaman. Verse number 10. Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Question. Was that difficult to understand? Was that challenging to appreciate the nuances or the directness of what was said? Of course it wasn't. One of the easiest sentences, I suppose, in the whole chapter. In fact, did Naaman understand what Elisha had commanded? Well, sure he did. Remember, he was upset about the fact it was the Jordan River. He was upset about the simplicity and the ease with which it was to be done. Maybe an interesting lesson there for you and for me is this. God's instructions, God's orders are understandable and clear. They are not meant, you see, to be abstruse, abstract, or in some other way challenging or difficult to understand. When it comes to various elements and various considerations of the Scriptures, aren't some of these thoughts certainly in order? You and I might consider some of those statements in the Old Testament at times at least to be challenging, and yet what was it Habakkuk was told? In Habakkuk 2.2, God through the prophet said to the people of Israel, write the vision and make it plain that those who read it may run. It was to be so clear, so impossible to misunderstand, that they were at once to act upon it and thus save themselves from the coming terror. Might we notice that those patterns amplify into the New Testament so easily? The plan of salvation. Mankind has garbled it, twisted it, perverted it, turned it, and all the while it is so simple. A child can understand it. Shame on men to have perverted it, tried to make it more complicated than what God gave it. The Lord said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. How hard a sentence is that? And we notice in Acts twenty two sixteen 16, when Ananias came to Paul, a clear-cut example, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That is not hard to understand. And yet mankind has so twisted baptism that some consider it a bad thing. They look upon it as almost an evil thing. A preacher that my family and I knew, Brother Johnny Ramsey from several years ago, he made the statement that at one time he was preaching in a northern town, a northern city, and a lady said to him, I'll die and go to hell before I'll be baptized. She saw baptism as something not essential, unneeded. In fact, it was something she was going to avoid at all costs. 
I suppose she never knew what a prophet she was. If she never attended to that need, and the Lord said it, not just our elders or myself, it's found on so many of the pages and examples of God's wonderful New Testament. When men then refuse the clear instructions of the Lord, is, it, is God to be blamed? Surely not. May you and I appreciate His instructions to Naaman were easy to understand, and they're easy to understand for us as well. The issue is do we have a heart ready to be submissive? Do we have a mind ready to bend our stubborn will to what He has said? What about a third lesson? In addition to these two, isn't it interesting Naaman's initial reaction? You'll notice the way verse number 11 began, as Brother Allen read that a moment ago. The first four words in the verse, but Naaman was wroth. When he first heard that statement, that commandment from Elisha, he was angry. He was full of rage and wrath. He was that dissatisfied with what God through Elisha had said. Isn't it still true that there can be individuals, just like I said a moment ago, a woman who was really filled with anger at what God had said, I am not going to be baptized. I don't care how many verses you point me to. That almost causes tears to stream down our face and no doubt Jesus' as well. For He's the one who gave that plan of salvation and He's the one that touches any heart that's submissive with it. That begs each of us today, doesn't it, to ask, have I attended to this first elemental matter in obeying the gospel? Being a good person alone won't save you or me. All the generosity and all the benevolence in the world, not in the name of the Lord, won't get anybody to heaven. We have to obey the gospel. I would ask each of us to think urgently and carefully about it. Here was Naaman, a fine man, honorable. Verse 1 says he was. A mighty man of valor, and yet he was afflicted with leprosy. Elisha told him something to do, and at first he was unwilling to do it. He was still a leper too. You see, the matter of your sin and mine will cling to us in the same way unless we submit, any person submits, to that which God has commanded. Let's develop that thought a little more carefully. Isn't it true that on many occasions in the Scriptures we find individuals who seemingly were angry or at least resentful at God? They didn't want to do what He said. That's inconvenient. That causes me not to do what I prefer. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16 what was their retort? We will not walk therein. They had a disdain for what God commanded. We're not going to do it, God. And there are still, sadly, tragically, regrettably, so many who in essence have that same attitude. I'm just not going to do it. May I say that may we each be reminded that just like Naaman was still a leper until he did what the Lord commanded, so too these individuals, God does still love them, but they'll remain a sinner until they submit to what God has commanded. That also includes you and me. 
You'll notice perhaps one final thought, those that refuse these things. Doesn't it take us to passages like 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, where there we're reminded God shall send them strong delusion that they might believe alive, that they might be damned. God will allow us to march right off to hell. He won't force us to obey Him. He won't, in fact, shake us and wake us up. He'll try. He will send us people that love us enough to try to correct us. He'll send us individuals who will proclaim to us the Word of God, but they cannot make us obey it. That has to be our decision. There's not a one of us that will stand on the day of judgment for anybody else in this room. When that day comes, shall you and I be prepared and ready to answer with favor at being covered by the blood of Christ? It'll do no good to answer anything else that day. Perhaps in light of that, the closing thought on this slide, notice what else Naaman attempted. We noticed it earlier in the lesson. The very mention of Jordan was so unsatisfactory, he said, what about the rivers Abana and Parfar? They're in Damascus. They're a lot better than the Jordan. Won't they suffice? Won't they do? And you and I all each understand well that answer. Substitutions for what God has said. It is a common thing in the human family, isn't it? Humans think we know so much. Even when it comes to religion, we think our way is superior. We think our idea is the ideal one. And we think God's ideas are old-fashioned, often to be replaced. Under the heading of these matter of substitutions, isn't it fascinating to give thought to so many of the attempts in the Word of God? Did Nadab and Abihu succeed in substituting? Leviticus 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. We know they didn't. They died on the spot when they offered strange fire before the Lord. What about those other scenes such as Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9? From the lips of our Savior Himself, Jesus even made observation. This people honoreth me with their lips, draweth nigh to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. Well, what are they doing, Lord? In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They're trying to substitute. It didn't work in the first century. It won't work today. Naaman, you see, has been able, by way of his mistakes, to point out so many issues that seemingly continue to trouble the human family. Can't we be thankful, so very thankful, that you and I can understand the simplicity and ease of the Word of God and proceed to notice examples like Noah in Genesis 6.22. Perhaps if any man should have been in a position to say, God, this is unreasonable. Build an ark, take the animals aboard, a flood's coming. There's only eight of us. And of that, there's only four men. God said, you've got 120 years to construct an ark. We have not the slightest record that Noah questioned it, not the slightest incident that he, in fact, was susceptible to disbelief. Verse 22 simply says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. I still believe, in principle, that has to be one of the finest statements to put on a tombstone. Thus did Mr. X, 
according to all that God commanded him, so did he. If that could be said of you or me, what else needs to be said? Perhaps one final set of thoughts. Other lessons as we come near the close of our time this morning. You'll notice that one of the things about which Naaman was disappointed was apparently the simplicity that surrounded what Elisha told him. Go and dip in the, in the river. Again, verse 11 says, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place. Naaman wanted a ceremony. He wanted a little more recognition for himself. He wanted a little more pomp and circumstance surrounding the event. He wanted some more notoriety, if I may put it that way. Isn't that still a problem that can inflict so very many today? They don't want that which is simplistic according to the Word of God. I want to be a name in this. I want to be honored, glorified, magnified, if you will. Isn't it true that some of these thoughts are certainly in order? God doesn't cater in His wisdom to your personal preferences or mine. He just doesn't do that. Aren't we reminded in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 20 and following that even the foolishness of God is wiser than men? And even the supposed strength or weakness of God is stronger than men. We seemingly are continually reminded then that this matter of wanting personal gratification for me, be that in worship, call it entertainment or otherwise, it wasn't to work in Naaman's day, and it won't work today either. Worship is not a time to entertain you or me. It's a time to glorify the one whom we're honoring by way of worship. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Psalm 89, 7. Didn't David write in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that's why we've gathered today, isn't it? To worship the Lord. It is thus tragic that there are circumstances in which individuals want to take center stage in this. Again, they want the recognition and the name. God basically just has to take a back seat to them. You'll notice their worship again is called vain in that text in Matthew 15, 9. Perhaps, finally, we notice. In addition to all of these, there's one final lesson that we'll have time for this morning. It surrounds the cleansing of Naaman and what he did thereafter. You remember that finally he did dip in that Jordan. He did exactly what Naaman said. And I've often wondered, though the Old Testament doesn't describe the detail, what was the look on his face when he came up the seventh time? What do you suppose the first words he said when he was cleansed of leprosy? Remember, not too many moments before he'd been in a rage, he'd been upset, he'd been dissatisfied, and now suddenly I suspect all of that vanished into utter and complete thankfulness. You'll notice that in fact he proceeded back to Elisha to offer him a gift, a gift of thanksgiving for offering those instructions for him to be cleansed. But you'll notice in the light of him doing that, 
Elisha refused the money. He refused everything that was offered physically. Today, what does that perhaps indicate about some attempts we might try? Do you and I sometimes think that we can offer to God our money, but we'll keep back everything else for ourselves? I'll make sure to contribute to the plate as it's passed on Sunday. But ultimately, the characteristics of my life and heart, I'll keep for myself. Notice that wouldn't work for him, and it won't work for us either. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. And aren't we told in Jeremiah 29, 13, that statement that reads like this, Ye shall search for me, and ye shall find me when you seek for me with all your heart. I suspect that as we've thought some about the mistakes of Naaman, it does bring us to a summary a review, if you will. We've learned six mistakes that he made. First, he went to the wrong source. May you and I always be wise enough to pursue the source from God. The second thing we observe, the mistakes that he made, pointed to the reality of the fact, among other things, the pomp and circumstance he desired that wasn't to be satisfactory. We noticed he tried to substitute for what God said that would not work. We notice he became angry even at what God said. Why would you and I ever be angry at God? We also notice in the final analysis that this man Naaman then helps us see finally through the clarity of all of this a wonderful Old Testament portrait of baptism. We hinted at that earlier in the lesson as we looked at the commandments of God, but maybe this is the appropriate time to rethink it. Here was a man who needed to dip seven times in the muddy waters of the Jordan River. Today, you and I are told we too must be immersed, not to cleanse leprosy, but to cleanse sin, not to cleanse some physical malady, but to cleanse the most serious spiritual malady of all, that which dooms our souls. If there'd be one or more in this audience today who knows right from wrong and hasn't been baptized, let me implore you, do not let this day pass. Your soul is in jeopardy. You don't know that you will have tomorrow. You don't even know that you'll have this afternoon. And even if you do, you may never be as close as you are today to obeying the gospel. My family and I have known individuals who at times, they even admitted, I'm thinking about obeying. Give me a little more time. It won't be long. Twenty-five years have now passed. He's still not a member of the church. Twenty-five years. I don't know that he ever will. How long are you going to wait? What are you waiting for? Will there ever be a better day than this one? The angels in heaven are ready, excited, and eager to rejoice on your behalf. Untold prayers have been offered to God on your behalf that your heart will be touched with the gospel. Countless times maybe you have heard invitations and sermons and Bible studies. Many occasions you have given thought to the teaching on one way or another of the Bible. And all this time, so far, you've rejected it. You've spurned it. You've turned a deaf ear to it. 
How long are you going to wait? What will you say in the day of judgment if nothing changes? You will have a memory, you know. And if you end up in hell, you're going to remember you had the opportunity to obey, but you never did. Can you imagine an eternity in which you think, I don't have to be here, but I spurned it. Why didn't I obey the gospel? The Lord died for me. He shed His blood at Calvary, bought the church for me. Why didn't I? If you need to respond, won't you come today while we stand and sing?